Chapter 3 The Final Stages of His Preparation Meanwhile, the Messiah, whom so many in their own way were hoping for, was in the midst of them, although they did not suspect it. Little could they think that he, about whom they were speculating and praying, was growing up in a carpenter's home in despised Nazareth. Yet it was so. He was there preparing himself for his career. His mind was busy grasping the vast proportions of the task before him, as the prophecies of the past and the facts of the case determined it. His eyes were looking forth on the country, and his heart was aching with the sense of its sin and shame. He felt the gigantic powers necessary to cope with the immense task moving within him. The desire was gradually growing to an irresistible passion to go forth and proclaim the thought within him and do the work that he had been given to do. Jesus only had three years to accomplish his life work. If we remember how quickly three years in an ordinary life pass by, and how little at their end there usually is to show for them, we will see what the size and quality of that character must have been, and in what unity and intensity of design there was in that life that in such a marvelously short time made such a deep and enduring impression on the world, and left to mankind such a heritage of truth and influence. It is generally agreed that Jesus appeared as a public man with a mind whose ideas were completely developed and arranged, with a character sharpened over its whole surface into perfect precision, and with intent and purpose that marched forward to their ends without hesitation. No deviation took place during the three years from the course on which he was headed. The reason for this must have been that during the thirty years before his public work began, his ideas, his character, and purposes went through all the stages of a thorough development. As unpretentious as the external aspects of his life in Nazareth were, below the surface it was a life of intensity, variety, and dignity. Beneath the silence and obscurity, there occurred all the processes of growth that resulted in the magnificent flower and fruit to which all ages now look back with wonder. His preparation lasted long. For someone with the powers at his command, thirty years of complete restraint and reserve were a long time. Nothing was greater in him afterward than the majestic reserve in both speech and action that characterized him. This, too, was learned in Nazareth. He waited there until the hour of the completion of his preparation struck. Nothing could tempt him to begin before the time, not the burning desire to interfere with indignant protest amid the crying corruption and mistakes of the age, and not even the continued increase of the passion to do his fellow men good. At last, however, he threw down the carpenter's tools laid aside the workman's clothing, and said farewell to his home and the beloved valley of Nazareth. Still, however, all was not ready. His manhood, though it had grown in secret to such noble proportions, still required a special endowment for the work he had to do. 
his ideas and plans, as prepared as they were, had to be hardened in the fire of a momentous trial. The two final incidents of his preparation, the baptism and the temptation, still had to take place. His Baptism Jesus did not descend on the nation from the obscurity of Nazareth without a note of warning. His work may be said to have begun before he himself put his hand to it. Once more, before hearing the voice of its Messiah, the nation was to hear the long, silent voice of prophecy. The news went through all the country that a preacher had appeared in the desert of Judea. He was not like the mumblers of dead men's ideas who spoke in the synagogues or the flattering, smooth-tongued teachers of Jerusalem. But he was a rude, strong man, speaking from the heart to the heart, with the authority of one who was sure of his inspiration. He had been a Nazarite from the womb. He had lived for years in the desert, wandering in communion with his own heart beside the lonely shores of the Dead Sea. He was clothed in the garment of hair and leather girdle of the old prophets. His ascetic rigor sought no finer fare than locusts and the wild honey that he found in the wilderness. Yet he knew life well. He was acquainted with all the evils of the time. He was familiar with the hypocrisy of the religious parties and the corruption of the people. He had a wonderful power of searching the heart and shaking the conscience, and he laid bare the cherished sins of every class without fear. However, that which most of all attracted attention to him and thrilled every Jewish heart from one end of the land to the other was the message that he proclaimed. It was nothing less than that the Messiah was at hand and was about to set up the kingdom of God. All of Jerusalem swarmed out to him. The Pharisees were eager to hear the Messianic news, and even the Sadducees were momentarily stirred from their lethargy. The provinces sent forth their thousands to his preaching, and the scattered and hidden ones who longed and prayed for the redemption of Israel flocked to welcome the heart-stirring promise. Along with it, though, John had another message that excited very different feelings in different minds. He had to tell his hearers that the nation as a whole was utterly unprepared for the Messiah. He told them that the mere fact of their descent from Abraham would not be sufficient evidence of admission to his kingdom, that it was to be a kingdom of righteousness and holiness, and that Christ's very first work would be to reject all who were not marked with these qualities. Just as the farmer winnows away the chaff with his fan, and the master of the vineyard cuts down every tree that does not bring forth any fruit. Therefore, this man, John the Baptist, called the nation at large, every class and every individual, to repentance. As long as there was still time, as an indispensable preparation for enjoying the blessings of the new era. As an outward symbol of this inward change, he baptized in the Jordan River all who received his message with faith. Many were stirred with fear and hope and submitted to the practice, but many more were irritated by the exposure of their sins and turned away in anger and unbelief. Among these were the Pharisees, 
upon whom John the Baptist was especially severe, and who were deeply offended because he had treated their descent from Abraham so lightly, on which they laid so much stress. Luke 3, 7-9 One day there appeared among the Baptist's hearers one who particularly attracted his attention, and made his voice, which had never faltered when accusing in the most vigorous language of reproof even the highest teachers and priests of the nation, tremble with self-distrust. When he presented himself, after the discussion was over among the candidates for baptism, John hesitated, feeling that this man was not one in need of the bath of repentance. John had without hesitation administered this baptism to all others, but thought that he himself had no right to baptize the Messiah. There was in his face a majesty, a purity, and a peace that struck the man of rock with a sense of unworthiness and sin. It was Jesus who had come straight here from the workshop of Nazareth. John and Jesus seemed never to have met before, although their families were related and the connection of their careers had been predicted before their birth. This may have been due to the distance between their homes in Galilee and Judea, and still more to the Baptists' eccentric habits. However, when, in obedience to the instruction of Jesus, John proceeded to administer the ritual, he learned the meaning of the overpowering impression that the stranger had made on him. For the sign was given by which God had instructed him that he was to recognize the Messiah, whose forerunner he was. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus as he emerged from the water in the attitude of prayer, and the voice of God thunderously pronounced Jesus to be God's beloved Son. Matthew three thirteen to 17 and John 1, 32 to 33. The impression made on John by the very look of Jesus revealed much more than many words could have done. It revealed when Jesus was about to begin his work, as well as the qualities of the character that had been slowly ripening to full maturity in Nazareth. The baptism itself had an important significance for Jesus. To the other candidates who underwent the ceremony, it had a double meaning. It signified the abandonment of their old sins and their entrance into the new messianic era. To Jesus, it could not have the former meaning, except insofar as he might have identified himself with his nation and taken this way of expressing his sense of its need of cleansing. However, it meant that he, too, was now entering through this door into the new era of which he was himself to be the author. It expressed his sense that the time had come to leave behind the employments of Nazareth and to devote himself to his unique work. Still more important was the descent upon him of the Holy Spirit. This was neither a meaningless display nor just a sign to John the Baptist. It was the symbol of a special gift then given to qualify Jesus for his work and to crown the long development of his distinct powers. It is a forgotten truth that the manhood of Jesus was dependent on the Holy Spirit from beginning to end. We are apt to think that its connection with his divine nature made this unnecessary. On the contrary, it made it far more necessary. 
For in order to be the instrument of his divine nature, his human nature had to be both endowed with the highest gifts and constantly sustained in their use. We are in the habit of attributing the wisdom and grace of his words, his supernatural knowledge of even the thoughts of people, and the miracles he performed to his divine nature. In the Gospels, though, these are constantly attributed to the Holy Spirit. This does not mean that they were independent of his divine nature, but that in them his human nature was enabled to be the instrument of his divine nature by a special gift of the Holy Spirit. This gift was given to him at his baptism. It was comparable to the possession of prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, with a spirit of inspiration on those occasions, of which they have left accounts when they were called to begin their public life, and to the special outpouring of the same influence, still sometimes given at their ordination, to those who are about to begin the work of the ministry. To Jesus, though, it was given without measure, while to others it has always been given only in measure, and it especially consisted of the gift of miraculous powers. The Temptation An immediate effect of this new gift appears to have been one often experienced, in less degree, by others who have received the same gift of the Spirit for work. His whole being was excited about his work. His desires to be engaged in it were raised to the highest degree. His thoughts were intensely occupied about the means of its accomplishment. Although his preparation for it had been going on for many years, and although his whole heart had long been focused on it, and his plan had been clearly settled, it was natural that when the divine signal had been given that it was time to begin, and he felt himself suddenly put in possession of the supernatural powers necessary for carrying it out, his mind would be in a tumult of rushing thoughts and feelings. It would be natural for Jesus to seek a place of solitude, to meditate once again upon the whole situation. Therefore, he promptly retreated from the bank of the Jordan River, driven, we are told, into the wilderness by the Spirit, who had been given to him. Mark 1.12 For forty days, Jesus wandered among the sandy dunes and wild mountains, depriving himself of the pleasures of the world and the flesh. Instead, fasting while resisting the temptations of the devil. Matthew 4, 1-11 and Luke 4, 1-13 It is with surprise and amazement that we learn that during those days his soul was the scene of a terrible struggle. He was tempted by Satan. What could he be tempted with at a time so sacred? To understand this, we must remember what had been said of the state of the Jewish nation, and especially the nature of the messianic hopes they were holding on to. They expected a Messiah who would work amazing wonders and establish a worldwide empire with Jerusalem at its center. And they had postponed the ideas of righteousness and holiness in order to pursue these. They completely reversed the divine conception of the kingdom, giving precedence to the material and political considerations rather than to the spiritual and moral elements. In carrying out the great work that his father had committed to him, 
Jesus was tempted to yield in some measure to these expectations. He must have foreseen that the nation would be disappointed and would probably turn away from him in unbelief and anger unless he did so. The different temptations were only various modifications of this one thought. The suggestion that he should turn stones into bread to satisfy his hunger was a temptation to use the power of working miracles, with which he had been endowed for a purpose inferior to that for which alone it had been given. This was the precursor of such temptations later in his life, as the multitude demanded him to show them a sign, or that he should come down from the cross so they could believe him. Matthew 27.40 and John 6.30 The suggestion that he should leap from the pinnacle of the temple was probably also a temptation to gratify the crude desire for wonders for it was a part of the popular belief that the Messiah would appear suddenly and in some marvelous way, such as by jumping from the temple roof into the midst of the crowds assembled below. The third and greatest temptation, to win the empire of all the kingdoms of the world by an act of worship to the evil one, was evidently just a symbol of obedience to the universal Jewish idea of the coming kingdom as a vast structure of material force. It was a temptation that every worker for God, weary with the slow progress of goodness, must often feel, and to which even good and earnest people have sometimes given way. To begin at the outside instead of within, to first get a framework of external conformity to religion, and afterward fill it with a reality. It was the temptation to which Mohammed yielded, when he used the sword to subdue those whom he was later to make religious, and to which the Jesuits yielded when they baptized the heathen first and evangelized them afterward. It is with amazement that we think of these suggestions presenting themselves to the holy soul of Jesus. Could he be tempted to distrust God? and even to worship the evil one? No doubt the temptations were flung from him as the powerless waves fall broken from the heart of the rock on which they have dashed themselves. However, these temptations pressed in on him, not only at this time, but often before in the Valley of Nazareth, and often afterward in the intensity and crises of his life. We must remember that it is not a sin to be tempted, but it is only sin to yield to temptation. Indeed, the more absolutely pure a soul is, the more painful will be the point of the temptation, as it presses for admission into his heart. Although the tempter only departed from Jesus for a little while, this was a decisive struggle. Satan was completely beaten back and his power was broken at its heart. John Milton has indicated this by ending his paradise regained at this point. Jesus emerged from the wilderness with the plan of his life, which, no doubt, had been formed long before, hardened in the fire of trial. Nothing is more obvious in his later life than the determination with which he carried it out. Other people, even those who have accomplished the greatest tasks, have sometimes not had a definite plan, but only saw the path to pursue a little at a time as their circumstances changed. 
their purposes have been modified by the events and the advice of others. However, Jesus started with his plan perfected, and he never deviated from it by even a hair breadth. He handled the interference of his mother or his disciples with his plan as unwaveringly as he carried it out through the fiery opposition of open enemies. His plan was to establish the kingdom of God in the hearts of individuals, not relying on the weapons of political and material strength, but only on the power of love and the force of truth. The Divisions of His Public Ministry The public ministry of Jesus is generally considered to have lasted three years. Each of these years had unique features of its own. The first year can be called the year of obscurity, both because the records of it that we possess are very limited, and because during this year Jesus seems to have been only slowly emerging into public notice. It was spent for the most part in Judea. The second year was the year of public favor, during which the country had become thoroughly aware of him. His activity was constant, and his fame rang throughout the length and breadth of the land. It was almost entirely spent in Galilee. The third year was the year of opposition. This is when the public approval subsided. His enemies multiplied and assailed him with more and more tenacity, and at last he fell victim to their hatred. The first six months of the final year were spent in Galilee, and the last six in other parts of the land. Thus, the life of the Savior in its external outline resembled that of many reformers and benefactors of mankind. Such a life often begins with a period during which the public is gradually made aware of the new man in its midst. Then it passes into a period when his doctrine or reform is carried high on the shoulders of popularity, and it ends with a reaction when the old prejudices and interests that have been assailed by him rally from his attack and, gaining to themselves the emotions of the crowd, crush him in their rage.